Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to the first Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips podcast of 2020. Thanks for tuning into our show, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, book editor for Brown is the New White and director of strategic communications for Democracy in Color. Hi, Charlene. You made it back from your annual pilgrimage to Canada, I see. Yes. Hi, Steve. Happy New Year. Yes, I'm back from the wintry north where I go each uh, winter holiday season to spend time with my in-laws and my family, my Canadian side of the family. I had a great time, uh, as usual. But it is really nice to be back in sunny California where I don't have to wear long johns every time I am preparing to go outside. Well, sunny, but not extraordinarily warm. Well, it's all relative. Yes, it is all <laughs> relative. Warm for yeah. where I, compared to where I just right. was. So what do we have on top today for our listeners as we start this new year? Yeah, hard to believe. Um, here we are, 2020, still waiting for my jet pack. Right. <laughs> and, and also hard to believe that we're just a few weeks away from the Iowa caucuses and the start of, you know, the starting line of actual voting where voters will actually vote in the Democratic primary. And there is going to be another debate next week, next Tuesday, and I believe it'll it'll be the last debate before uh, the, the Iowa, Iowa caucuses. caucuses. Right. And at this point... Assuming it happens with all the impeachment um, scheduling madness. So. And so many things going on at once, yep. yes. So we are hoping that it will happen. <laughs> and be on track. At this point, as we all know, the leading candidates in the polls and in terms of fundraising and in terms of who will be at the debates are all white. So today on this episode, we're going to flip the question. And instead of asking, why aren't candidates of color doing better in this race, which is how the question is often posed and traditionally posed, and we're going to instead ask and try to answer the opposite question. Are Democrats showing preferential treatment toward white male candidates. Then we'll talk about what happened with Julian Castro. As we know, he has dropped out of the race, and we have some thoughts on that, right, Steve? We'll talk about that. And we'll close with shining a spotlight on a hidden figure in our Hidden Figure segment. Yeah, so I'm excited about this episode and really to get going at this you know, whole year. It's going to be a very wild and crazy political year brings to mind the closing words of this poem that um, Alice Walker wrote. She says, I am the woman offering two flowers whose roots are twin, justice and hope. Let us begin. So let's begin. Oh, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. I got to look that one up. That's beautiful. That is um, a beautiful way to describe what I think in reality, Steve, is going to be much more of like a chaotic I don't know, different kind of uh, a metaphor. Uh, but here we are. I've been saying to everybody, you know, buckle down because 2020 already, as we have seen, has just started off with, um, you know, just so much going on at once. But, you know, we're going to do this. Uh, we are, it seemed far off, and here we are. It's 2020, presidential election year, uh, one very key election year of our lifetimes, a very unique in many aspects. And so, Steve, let's get into the main topic we want to discuss today. Are Democrats showing preferential treatment to white male candidates? Yes. Okay. So how do, how do we know that? Oh, yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, 
So first, I do want to say that it, it, it's actually really important to talk about this, mainly because no one ever does. So it actually reminds me of the Seinfeld episode where Elaine was dating a guy with olive-colored skin and somewhat curly hair. And Jerry says, oh, you're dating a black guy. She says, he is? And George goes, are we supposed to be talking about this? And that's really what... I don't what, even really remember that episode. And I thought I saw all of them, but I trust your memory. And oh, no, I love like, that episode. And then it's... <laughs> and then check it, that one out. They discover actually that he's white and that he thought Elaine was Latina. And then they're like, so we're just a couple of white people? Oh, my God, that sounds so <laughs> and funny. And she says, should we go to the Gap? <laughs> right? And that's how the episode ends. So, um, But the point being about talking about these types of issues, and they were actually tapping around the fear that a lot of people have about getting into these kinds of conversations. So that's what we're here for. And so we really want to be able to offer this kind of platform to have this conversation. Yeah, I want to add that. I feel like especially there are a lot of people in the progressive world who are afraid to not just talk about racism, but how implicit bias and racism works within the, the progressive world, within progressive politics. People just think, oh, well, we're also progressive. It, it doesn't apply to us. And yet it definitely does. Absolutely. OK, so there are three pillars to this white male candidate preferential treatment. And then in addition to that, we actually have now scientific data and research and polling that actually lend support uh, to this understanding of what's actually happening. So first is the failure of the Democratic Party to inform public opinion in a way that refutes the popular myth that Democrats need a white male nominee in order to beat Trump, especially since the electoral data doesn't actually support that conclusion, but the perception is very widespread. Second is the unequal distribution of wealth in the country, where white people in general and white men in particular have more money than people of color and women, right? The average white family has 10 times more money than the average black and Latino family. Women make just 80 cents on the dollar for every dollar a man makes. I mean, Jesse Jackson used to have a whole segment of his speeches about women can't buy bread cheaper, women can't buy milk cheaper. Just four of the major candidates receive the majority of their financial contributions from women, and two of them, Kamala and Castro, have now dropped out. So it's no accident that the white candidates and white male candidates in particular lead in fundraising. So that's the second pillar. And then third, and this is where the Democratic Party is most complicit, is that they've constructed and doubled down on rules that effectively penalize the female and candidates of color. And especially this takes place in the debate qualification rules. Yeah, those definitely sound like some, you know, three significant pillars of preferential treatment for the white guys. And those are just, again, unfair advantages that weigh in their favor simply due to their race and gender and not because of anything else that they're doing. But, Steve, I wanted to ask you, one could really argue that these problems, these challenges are really part of a broader structural and societal problem in our country rooted in the history of our country, institutionalized racism, sexism, patriarchy. Can you talk about how, in particular, the Democratic Party has been complicit in this? Yes, they are societal problems, and that's the kind of the point, right? This nomination context does not take place in a vacuum. No, it takes it place in the context of what's going on in our society, and you have to be mindful of that, particularly in terms of how your processes and rules and procedures interrelate with the larger dynamics within the society. So what's happening in terms of the party's role here is that there are errors of both omission and commission, right? So things they're omitting and mistakes that they're actually committing. 
So the omission part is that there's been very little effort to inform Democratic voters about how to win. And that allows the perpetuation of these incorrect assumptions that, that wind up benefiting the white men and harming the women and the people of color. Right. There have been no articles, no panels, no explanatory YouTube videos. Obama's campaign in 08 did these regular videos, which were actually quite educational and highly watched when he actually ran. Right. There have been no you know, podcasts looking at why did Trump win? Was it really that there were hordes of Democrats who backed Obama but then flipped to Trump? Spoiler alert, no. Was it lots of people in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania thinking Clinton had it in the bag so they could cast protest votes for Jill Stein? Yes, a completely underappreciated reality. Was it African Americans being blocked from voting by the right wing and taken for granted by the left so the black turnout numbers fell off the cliff? Also, yes. So the implications to the answer to those questions are very important for what we need to do in order to win in 2020 and in terms of what kind of nominee and ticket that the Democrats are going to put forward. So what could the Democratic Party as a whole and different parts of it, what could they be doing that they're not, that they haven't been doing so far in this cycle that they could still do to make a difference So they have a very significant platform and voice, and they could be using it to educate people more. And they really need to be, because there's really, frankly, two very different and conflicting opinions around strategy and tactics, and they're doing very little to contribute to people better understanding how to proceed in that. And frankly, the the conflict is between do you run towards people of color or do you run away from them? And the, both of those trends actually exist with the Democratic Party. And there's different data showing that, you know, maybe or maybe not, you could win with those different approaches. But that conversation isn't being fostered. And that's what the party can be doing, right? So that they have, the Democratic National Committee has 1.7 million Twitter followers, 1.6 million Facebook followers. They could be holding Facebook Live discussions or debates on strategy, featuring these different points of view and educating people around move, how to move forward, right? So, for example, just this week, you had two very different strategic takes about what Democrats should be doing that ran on major media platforms. The New York Times ran an op-ed on January 6th titled, How Democrats Can Win Back Obama-Trump Defectors. So it's by Sean McElway and Brian Schaffner, who are described as uh, political data experts. Now, I think there are a lot of problems with their analysis, starting with the math. We don't have time to go into all of that here. But I want to highlight one example in terms of what has been allowed to be festered without any discussion or debate, and the party could be fostering more engagement with that, right? So their whole piece, and it's very long and prominently featured, it's predicated in the belief that 6 million people nationally switched from voting for Obama in 2012 to voting for Trump in 2016. Now, I think the number is actually grossly inflated and kind of impossible mathematically, but again, that's a separate topic here. But the bigger point is that the assumption of their piece is that Democrats need to be trying to win back a good chunk of those supposed 6 million people in order to win in 2020. But Hillary won the popular vote in 2016. She won by 3 million votes. That's right. So the entire premise of their piece is somewhat actually nonsensical. But it's in the New York Times, and it's influencing and being reporters, got you know graphs and charts attached to it. And so it's in the context of that kind of misinformation being out there that the failure of the party to use their forum for discussion of these issues allows the myth to persist, right? Conversely, on the other hand, January 7th, The Atlantic has this excellent piece by Ibram X. Kendi titled The Other Swing Voter. His argument, I think, is much more on point, is that for all this obsession with Obama-Trump voters, there's another group 
of swing voters, people of color and young people, who swing between voting Democratic and not voting at all. And so he highlights that even if you accept that 6 million number, there's still 6.7 million people who went to not voting or voting third party. So if the conventional wisdom in this country was that we needed to woo people of color and young people, we'd be having a very different conversation around what the profile of the ideal nominee is. So I would argue the party has an obligation as well as an opportunity to foster this kind of strategic debate, particularly in a country where the main opinion-shaping institutions are still controlled by white men. Absolutely. That's, those are great points. And I really like the work of Ibram X. Kendi. And just great to see that he is able to have that kind of platform and put that kind of analysis out there. Yeah, that was yeah. a very valuable voice being added to the public conversation. I mean, to the extent that my dad was, you know, emailing me, have you heard of this Ibram X guy? So. <laughs> so I always find it interesting, if not maddening, that the conventional wisdom on how and why Dems have won and lost over the past few years is pretty much the opposite of what actually happened. And that false narrative, the the incorrect narrative, seemed to get a lot more airtime and gets repeated, you know, like that New York Times article that you were just talking about. Right. And so this idea has really taken hold contrary to reality, right? So the irony of this is that much of the focus of the like voters in Iowa is trying to predict how voters in the Midwest will vote and what kind of candidate they want, right, since we lost Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. But the reality is that in 2018, Democrats ran the table in Michigan, winning every statewide office that was up, governor, lieutenant governor, senator, secretary of state, attorney general. And there was not a single white male on the Democratic ticket. You had four women, two of them lesbians, and one black man. But people don't know that. I didn't fully appreciate it. And the party has done nothing to promote that reality, which would help dispel the notion that white male candidates are the strongest. I mean, where are the Twitter Q&As and Facebook Lives and appearances on national television of the governor and lieutenant governor and the attorney general from Michigan so you can give a different face to what victory looks like in the Midwest? That's the omission part of what the party's doing. It's definitely true. I think that that definitely never fully got out there in terms of all the wins in Michigan, the diversity of the the candidates who won. And it's definitely true that people don't, don't know about it or they are not getting the stories about it. And if they did, they would have a fuller picture of what a candidate looks like who is, you know, winnable, you know, is, is electable, right. that's what electability th- right. means. That's one thing Stacey Abrams talks about is that she does not look like what a typical picture is of a candidate. And there's a power in that and an importance to be able to change that perception. So I get the point, Steve, that you were saying there's definitely a great loss and some really uh, damaging impact around the fact that there's this omission in the story, in the narrative around who is electable and who is what type of candidate can win. I wanted to hear you talk more about the commission part if you can go into that. Right, in terms of what the party is actively what doing. The, yeah, right. what the party is actually doing. So fundamentally it relates to this debate qualification criteria situation, right? So it's setting up, doubling down, and frankly stubbornly sticking to debate qualification rules that lock out candidates of color. And not even just sticking to it, exacerbating the problem by making the criteria even more and more exclusionary every single month. And so that's why there's going to be an all-white debate stage um, next week. Right, so the cornerstones of the debate qualification criteria are polling numbers 
on the one hand and then fundraising on the other. So the polling is influenced by this misperception that white men are the strongest. And then fundraising is fueled and distorted by the racial wealth gap and this gender pay gap. And those two factors that they're depending upon and refusing to modify are critical in terms of who they're letting on stage and who they're excluding from the stage. And I just want to add that to me it's really clear that fundraising is also affected by the fact that people, entities, and organizations give money to candidates who they think they have the best shot at winning, which goes again into the issue of electability and not necessarily who they really want to win. Um, And the fact that most people feel, many people feel that white candidates, especially white men, historically have had the best chances of winning and their memories are tied to like that's the image of who wins elections so it just becomes a vicious cycle and and regarding polls like you said you know i think people i want to hear you talk more about it because polls have had this reputation people have this image that polls are objective and neutral right and people have this perception in terms of the that you need a white guy to win although in the past four 2000, 2004, 2008, 2012, 2016 presidential elections, it's only been a black person who's actually won yeah, the White I House. I love telling people Democrats. that. And then they, they really kind of look at me like I'm wrong. Like I must right. be wrong. Yes, and then they do the yes. math and they like, oh, you're wild. You're right. Yes. <laughs> um, so what's interesting on this on this polling front, right? So that's been part of the, I think, why the Democrats have been so intransigent around making any changes is that there's this perception, oh, well, polling is, you know, very objective. We can't be changing the criteria, et cetera. And the media feeds into that as well. And it's a lot of the anti-affirmative action biases that are in society in general. About, oh, you're going to change the rules to provide preferential treatment to people of color, right? Which is why I wanted this episode to talk about preferential treatment for white people, for white men in particular. So we now have data out there, right, from some different polls that have been done that really quantifies a lot of ways how much of a boost the white men are getting in the polls and how much of a penalty the women and people of color face. You know we love data. And so let's turn to our Doctor is In segment. So right now, let's bring in our doctor, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega, expert on data to help us understand what I like to call white man's boost, or we can call white man's bump. (laughs) Hi, Julie, you there? Hi, hi there, y'all. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, doctor. Thank you for joining us. I know you've been crunching numbers and pouring over spreadsheets, um, as I have been. I spent four hours on uh, New Year's Eve uh, downloading and getting my computer set up for the new version of Excel. Um, But what have you found in terms of whether Democrats are showing preferential treatment to white males? What data have you seen in that regard? Well, so we've got some um, new pretty unique polls that have been done recently, and these sort of give us some insights. They put numbers next to the power of racism and sexism, you know, among the electorate. And we need to do some more exploration, of course, but based on what we have seen thus far, the data really does suggest that a large segment of the white Democratic voters think that most voters overall are influenced by racism and sexism is you know important to know and so a lot of them as a result are gravitating to the white male candidates so i think for those of us who experience racism and sexism on a regular basis it's like intuitive a little bit of you know water being wet um but what data actually is there to back up this conclusion what do these polls show in that regard 
Yeah, so the New York Times, uh, jointly with Siena College, conducted a poll in late October. And um, for the first time that I've seen, they asked Iowa caucus goers both about their views on the impact of racism and sexism in the 2016 elections, as well as how they thought that racism and sexism would impact the prospects of different types of candidates going into 2020, as well as um, the impact that might have on their own top choices for the Democratic nominee. Yeah, you would, you would think that it would not be a unicorn situation where they're actually asking about these issues, but we can uh, hope that things will one day get better. So what did, what did this poll find? So there are three major findings that I uh, just want to kind of lift up here. So the first is that 76% of the respondents said that racism was a major factor in Trump's victory. And 63% said sexism was a major factor, which I think is really good to just see quantified right then. Second, it showed that white male candidates in general got what I call a 50% plus bias bonus. And that is that they benefit from the belief among voters that a white male candidate would have an easier time defeating Trump. And then third, it showed a bias penalty for women and for African-Americans, which is like about a 40, 48 percent penalty um, for each of them, respectively. So can you explain that a little bit more in terms of the, the bias bonus and the bias penalty? What did they ask and how did, how did that uh, what does the data show about that? Yeah, so it comes from the fact that the dominant concern among many Democrats, as we all know, is electability, right? That seems to be the big theme for uh, 2020. And everyone is rightly perhaps obsessed with defeating Trump. So this polls the first time that we have data assessing the voter opinions about what kinds of candidates they think have the best chance of beating Trump and then how they would balance their interest in a candidate who can beat Trump against their interest in a candidate who shares their views on key issues. So what we uh, see from that is that 53% of Democrats think that a white male would have an easier time winning beating Trump, while just 1% think that a white male would have a harder time beating Trump. I'd like to meet that 1%. (laughs) I know, right? Yeah. And then for women and for people of color, it's a penalty on each group because most voters... um, that respond to this poll believe that candidates from those backgrounds would have a harder time against Trump. So uh, women were seen to have a 48% harder time and African-American candidates had a 40% harder time, according to these voters that were surveyed. So I think this is super important and it's really why we wanted to lift this up and and more shine a spotlight on it because, you know, usually people think in democratic politics about, you know, racism, sexism, either they dismiss it or they say, oh, it's kind of like the weather, right? It's out there, it's in the atmosphere, but you can't measure it and there's nothing you can actually do about it. And so this is some of the first time we have data being able to dive deeper to understand how it manifests itself um, in the race. So what is the, what does the data show, Julia, about the, which candidates benefit the most from this bias bonus? Uh, Yes. So the clear beneficiaries are Biden and Buttigieg in particular. So the poll has a question asking about each candidate's supporters um, and ask them which is important to them, someone who agrees with them on the issues or someone who can beat Trump. So among Biden's um, supporters, two out of three say they choose to support the candidate that they believe can beat Trump over the candidate that they agree with on most of the issues. And similarly for Pete, it's 61% of his supporters who are choosing that beat Trump option, right? 
And then for the other candidates uh, whose supporters were surveyed, it's the opposite, with the majority of their supporters choosing a candidate that they agree with on the issues. And so this really tells us something important about the mindset of each candidate's supporters and what's really driving um, a lot of their interest. Right. And I think that, you know, for Biden, the very premise of his campaign is that, you know, he's the white guy who can win back white male voters, right? I mean, his wife almost basically said those words when she was being interviewed, saying, you may not agree with him on the issues, but you got to, you know, suck it up and get behind those who, uh, who can actually win. And even the timing of Biden's campaign, which I do think that criticism needs to be continued to be levied, is that there were a whole bunch of people of color in this race uh, already when Biden got into the race. And so that supposition is that they weren't good enough to actually be able to defeat Trump and that they needed you know, someone with his background. So I just can I interject? I believe he actually had a quote where he said, I'm the only one who can beat Trump. Yeah. Despite the fact that the person who has won was an African-American man from Chicago. So I also think it's important to understand how all of these dynamics interrelate. And, and as we look at this question around how it effectively works to privilege and benefit the white male candidates, right? So I think that's what the DNC is failing to account for, right? So polling strength, which you know, Julie just talked about, is influenced by these uh, perceptions around the relative strength of white men versus uh, women and people of color. So the polling strength affects everything from debate qualification to the mindset, you know, as Charlene was saying about fundraising strength. Candidates want to, people want to give to people they think have a chance. And then fundraising also affects the ability to advertise, communicate with voters, and increase polling numbers, which you actually need to do to get back to the debate stage. So it's really a vicious cycle that is rooted in the realities of racism and sexism in this country. So Steve, the poll and uh, that Julie was talking about, and thanks, Julie, for breaking that down, I found that super interesting, maddening, but, you know, interesting for sure. That poll that Julie was referencing, my understanding is that most of the respondents were white. Yeah, it was an Iowa poll and 90% of the Iowa voters and the Iowa people polled are white. Okay. And, but I'm kind of curious, what do we know about people of color and their perceptions and how this type of questions, these type of issues affect the mindset of voters of color? Well, yes, and it, it, and it particularly applies into uh, to Biden support, which is kind of this, you know, oddly circular reality that people aren't grasping. Like Biden leads in the polls nationally because he has strong support among black voters. Biden is supported by black voters because black voters think he's strong with white voters. Right. And so that, and that mindset was actually reflected. There was a uh, tweet by the reporter Erin um, Haynes, African-American woman reporter, and she tweeted, I'm going to keep saying this. Black voters are pragmatic. For many, electability means who white voters are most comfortable with. So Biden does have strong support among black voters, as I was saying, but it's because black voters think he's strong with white voters. That's right. It's, uh, it's the reality, and <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's almost like looking you know, through the looking glass. Exactly. It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, but... And then if you think about it some more, it does. Uh, I do want to say Erin Haynes is a reporter with Associated Press, and I'm, I really appreciate her work, too. She's an African-American reporter who um, has been doing some great work, and her, her beat right now is covering issues of race in the presidential election this year. So to wrap up this section, I wanted to uh, just say that, you know, the point is that not only do we all know that white men 
it's almost like like you had said, water is wet. Like we all have had um, a good understanding that the reality in our society is that white men have privileges. They have it better overall. They enjoy built-in advantages. But it's really interesting that through this poll, um, we have this data to show it. And it's very rare, I feel like, that we get data that we can extrapolate, examine, yep. and reference to really show how it plays out uh, in this case, in this presidential race uh, and among voters and their mindset. Right. Yeah. And then, and then the failure of the Democrats to act to offset this advantage is, in effect, showing preference to the white male candidates. because They're perpetuating these structural inequalities, doing nothing to refute the misperceptions that are out there, and most troubling, doubling down on their reliance on these exclusionary criteria. And speaking of the criteria, um, and I just have to say that I got really excited in the beginning of this election cycle, uh, you know, seeing the diversity mm-hmm. of all the candidates who were in the race. Well, we started off with, what, 23, probably more. Yep. Um, I did not think that we would be at this point already, um, you know, about to uh, going into the Iowa caucuses and about to see a debate where the stage was only filled with white candidates. But that's the reality. So the question is, what could Democrats do differently, specifically when it comes to the rules, the qualifications? Are there changes they could make to make the debate qualification criteria more fair and reflecting what society should be doing to make it you know, just a more just process? Yeah, there are a lot of things they could be doing. And I, and I do want to say that I have some you know, sympathy for you know, Chairman Perez and what he's been the pressures he's been under, right? Because you also have the sector within the party who doesn't want to seem like it's being, you know, preferential towards people of color. And they had had discussions. They had a process to come up with what these criteria are. But what people don't realize is that they keep changing the criteria every month. And so that's what would be the easiest, simplest fix is to go back to the criteria that we're not excluding people. And so they could go back to the November criteria and just reimpose those and stick with those, and then you would have a more diverse um, uh, debate stage. So that's the quickest, simplest, and I think least controversial change that could be made. Yeah, that would be great if they could make those changes. And uh, I really also disagreed with the fact that they just kept changing the criteria. And it almost seems like they were doing that for the sake of um, winnowing people down, making the stage smaller, making it more TV friendly. Right. That was more important to them than democracy. (laughs) Well, having people of color on the stage. Yeah. So um, speaking of candidates and candidates of color, we did all just recently have another candidate of color. What I feel like is candidate of color casualty in this election cycle where Julian Castro dropped out of the race. So let's talk about that briefly. And Julie, I think you're still with us. Um, I know you're from San Antonio, and Castro was your mom's mayor. So I'd love to have you weigh in on this. What are your takeaways from his candidacy, Julie, and the fact that he's now dropped out? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly disappointing. Um, Not only was he the only Latino in the race, but he was by far the strongest and most unapologetic voice on racial justice issues across the board, from police killings to immigration reform to reparations. And now that he's stepped down, that voice is gone. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a profound loss, I think, for the entire process, right? And, that, you know, with all of the tiptoeing around the widespread racism in this country, right, people are so fearful of alienating supposedly gettable swing voters, the most urgent and 
dramatic and painful issues that affecting communities of color are usually just whispered about. And Julian was not whispering. He was putting them out front and center. Yeah, he definitely did. And I also felt that he was one of the most forceful and passionate candidates on the issues of talking about race and justice and so necessary and, you know, just really going to miss having him be part of the process and this conversation and on the national stage. We have a clip of him from his announcement speech that highlights how, you know, his strength in talking about these issues. To be the fairest nation, we have to reform and reimagine our justice system. All over this nation, for far too many people of color, any interaction with the police can become fatal. If police in Charleston can arrest Dylan Roof after he murdered nine people worshiping at Bible study without hurting him, then don't tell me that Michael Brown and Tamir Rice and Ayanna Jones and Eric Garner and Jason Perrow and Stephon Clark and Sandra Bland shouldn't still be alive today. We're gonna keep saying their names and those of too many others just like them who are victims of state violence. We're gonna keep saying that black lives matter while working toward a justice system well, that's true. Yeah, I just love that clip in terms of how forceful, unapologetic he is in talking about Black Lives Matter, naming the different people who have suffered and been killed um, by police violence without apology, right? And, and that people don't appreciate the amount of pressure that's on candidates to distance themselves from people of color and issues of injustice and inequality. I mean, I experienced this when I ran for office in San Francisco. Right? The first time I ran, and I talk about this in the book, right? one of my, uh, Sharon Hugo was saying, you need to get out to the Bayview where the black community is. I'm like, I'm going to the white part of town where the most voters are. I mean, these pressures are very profound within democratic politics. And so to have candidates take those types of stands and to articulate those issues is very, very uh, unusual and important because it's so unusual. Right. In terms of this pressures piece, right, the New York Times article I was mentioning about how to woo uh, Obama Trump voters, within that they offer their instruction is to downplay racial justice concerns. Right, and they refer to it as identity politics. They identify all these economic issues, but there's agreement with uh, you know supposed Obama Trump voters, but then they say like, oh, but on the you know women's rights and people of color's issues, it's not. So you should downplay those issues. Right, and so that's a lot of the dominant strategic thinking within politics now. And so to have someone like Castro who would stand up, speak out, be knowledgeable, forceful, um, was extremely valuable. And it's just a huge loss to the whole process uh, to not have him out there anymore. Yeah, definitely. And and Julie, I know that you had mentioned that he was the only Latino candidate. I was really curious because I can't remember the number, but can you remind us again what percentage of voters are Latino in this country? What percentage of the population is Latino? Yeah, so 18% of the population is Latino, uh, and it's 12% of the eligible voters. Yeah, and and I'd add that they're 14% of Democratic voters, since most of the Latinos tend to vote Democratic. So in terms of the Democratic Party base, um, it's a bigger uh, portion of that. And I think that that then is a challenge to the entire progressive movement, right? Which leaders are we lifting up? Who do we promote? Who are we backing? Who are we donating? Who are we talking to our friends about? Right? Talking about the, there's a 
know, cocktail party currency. You know, have you heard about so and so? Right. So, if we if strongly progressive Latino leaders can't get backing, then we're going to have to rely upon those who've been more accommodating uh, to the status quo. So, speaking of rising progressive Latinos and Latina leaders, in our next podcast episode, we're going to be featuring a Latina running for U.S. Senate, Christina Tsinsun Ramirez in Texas. Yeah, Christina's a friend, and she's an amazing leader with an impressive and really long track record of advancing working family and immigration issues, social justice issues, and I'm really excited that she's going to be on the show. Yeah, me too. Yeah, we're excited to have that conversation. So it'll be a real illustration of how do you win in a, in a, in a state like Texas. Um, so that'll be, that'll be our next episode. Um, and that, as we're talking about these leaders who are out there, right, people are finding their voice being progressive, right? There's another amazing young Latina leader, um, Texas State Rep. Mary Gonzalez, right? 36-year-old Latina. She was elected to the legislature. She was 29. She's a farmer, the first openly LGBTQ member of the Texas State Legislature. She went from being the first uh, openly gay state legislature in Texas to now she has a caucus that they've been able to actually, they have like five or six different people. Um, she's the first woman elected uh, from El Paso. In Florida, there's uh, Andrea Mercado, executive director of New Florida Majority. Their work was really critical around helping to orchestrate much of the voter turnout work that propelled Andrew Gillum to his upset victory in the gubernatorial nomination in Texas. There are lots of leaders like these people, right? And so the progressive movement has to embrace and promote them because without that kind of foundation to stand on, a Latino presidential candidacy is always going to be an uphill battle. So part of the positive and, you know, really strong legacy of the Castro campaign was the empowerment and an elevation of women of color in leadership in that campaign. And I don't think that enough people know about that. Starting with his campaign manager, Maya Rupert, who is our hidden figure for this episode. So Maya is a writer on issues of race, gender, culture, and politics for publications such as the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and Salon. She's a lawyer. She has a degree from Berkeley Law School. And she's one of the few black women to have ever run a presidential campaign, and certainly the youngest at 38 years old. She, again, was the campaign manager for Julian Castro and who was the only Latino candidate in this year's um, 2020 field. And together, they just made a really dynamic duo, really diverse duo in what is ultimately a very white male field. Before she joined Castro's campaign, she worked for years honing policy skills at the National Center for Lesbian Rights and the Center for Reproductive Rights. And she even worked with Castro as his senior policy advisor when he was Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. A few of her accolades, just a few, because the list is long, but a few that I wanted to just highlight. She has been named to the Roots 100 list. That's called the Root 100 in 2011. And that's an annual list published by that magazine of the top 100 most important black influencers between the ages of 25 and 45. I think she, I've either aged, aged out of it or they started after it already aged out of it. But, oh. <laughs> but I'm happy for Maya, though. <laughs> I don't know that. The, yeah, I don't, I don't even know how long the roots have been around. But we are, um, you know, big fans of their work and that list. She was also, Maya was also named to Ebony Magazine's annual list 
of the top 100 most influential African Americans in 2011. And if you do the math, you know, you can, you know, she was even that much younger then. Rupert's Huffington Post blog was awarded National Association of Black Journalists Salute to Excellence Award in 2012 and 2013 for her commentary. And her essay, This Cool Black Girl is Gone, was selected by Salon as one of the best essays of 2017. So check that out. It's called This Cool Black Girl is Gone. We definitely applaud Maya on her great and important work and that hope, you know, sending her wishes that whether it's through her writing or a policy or, or work in politics, just wishing her the best as she works to continue to fight for issues that support and affect marginalized communities. I think uh, there are two important things worth noting here uh, in terms of Maya's significance, right? So in the entire history of this country, just three presidential campaigns have been run by black women. Donna Brazil ran Al Gore's campaign in 2000. Maggie Williams ran the kind of the second half of Hillary's campaign in uh, 2008, and now Maya. And so that's the half glass half empty part of the equation. The half full part is that looking at this year, five of this year's campaigns are actually being run by people of color in terms of their campaign managers. A long time coming. <laughs> well, it's still something to celebrate. I think that's you know something that not enough people know about, and it's not reported on enough, but it, I was definitely keeping track. I know we, our whole team was, <laughs> every time there was an article mentioning a person of color working on a campaign, we were given cheers. So we have this clip of Maya being, talking about the significance and her awareness of this role being an African-American in this position. So there was an interview uh, with the Grio, an African-American focused news site. Um, here's Maya talking about her role. Being the only um, woman in this cycle, the, the only black woman in this cycle um, running a presidential campaign is huge deal for me. It's, I mean, it's a huge honor. It's also, I think, a huge responsibility. I think about it a lot. I think about the fact that the next black woman in this position is going to, you know, um, there are going to be things that I do that will contribute, hopefully, to her success. But I think also just, you know, I, I think very often about the fact that how I do and how I carry myself in the cycle will hopefully open doors for the next um, generation of black women who are going to be doing these jobs. I really try to make sure, you know, our team is very diverse. We have a lot of women of color uh, working on our team. I try very, very hard to, um, you know, sort of set an example and, and, you know, sort of carry myself with confidence that I want them to emulate in their careers um, because it shouldn't be noteworthy at all um, that I'm a black woman running a campaign and my fervent hope is that it's not going to be anymore. That's a great clip. Yeah, she's a really impressive figure. Um, I have high hopes for uh, where she can go from here and hope she can continue to play a really significant role uh, within progressive politics. So with that brings us to almost the end of our episode today. Um, And before we say goodbye, we always like to ask a fun question. So the question I want to ask you and Julie today is, what is something you did over the holidays that was relaxing and fun? could just share that with us well I will start and I don't think relaxing or fun is the right piece but it felt a sense of accomplishment is that I did in fact spend four hours trying to get Microsoft Excel current version on my computer I got it and I tried to download the uh, earlier version back in July and this fancier version but then you have to do this monthly thing so they wound up downloading it, and it took forever to download. And then instead, I had to upgrade my entire computer operating system. So then I upgraded the operating system, and that took forever. But I do now, in fact, have 
the latest, greatest Excel spreadsheet capacity on my computer, and that it also wound up making me upgrade my writing uh, software, Scrivener. So that was an added benefit of that. So not typically what people think about in terms of holiday, but I am who I am. Okay, so... Julie, do you have a more <laughs> apt response yeah, to the question? Did you do anything? What did here. you do that was relaxing <laughs> and or fun over the holidays? Less relaxing, but fun. So I like to try out new recipes for fun. And oh, yeah, uh, so my mom and I made awesome. a ponche navideño mexicano, which is a Mexican Christmas punch. And we'd mm. never done this before. And it involved all sorts of running around town. And out here in D.C., you'd find the right ingredients, including this thing called um, bejocotes, which are some uh, little, uh, they kind of look like little apples. Uh, I think they're called hawthorns in English. Anyway, um, but it made a gorgeous, beautiful punch, and we could not figure out how to get it to have the right balance between tart and sweet. And we went back and forth and back and forth. And finally, we just threw in some rum, and it was all better after that. So that <laughs> rum makes it all better. <laughs> That's the takeaway. Yeah, rum solves lots of problems and helps with fun. <laughs> so there you go. That sounds like so much fun. <laughs> Thank you, Julie. Um, real quickly, my husband last year built, you know, again, my husband's Canadian, so we spend the holidays in Canada. Last year, he built a full-on like igloo on my in-law's property. This year, we didn't get that much snow. It was a warmer year, but we did make an attempt, and it ended up being um, a bit of a fort. So my husband, myself, and my daughter, we worked on it almost every day, and it was super fun. And it was, um, yeah, we, we had a little fort. It was like not a full-on igloo, but we got to have hot cocoa in it. You have pictures? You had pictures last year. Yeah, we need pictures. I do. I have pictures. All right. We'll look forward to that. All right. And so that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. Our hotline number is 415-209-5103. Feel free to call and leave us a message. We want to be incorporating voicemails and comments into the future shows. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded at the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.